Hey, loved by President Obama and A-list celebrities, Fiji water has quickly become one of the top-selling bottled water brands in the United States. This is no doubt the result of a marketing blitz that has constructed for the water both a posh image and perhaps more pointedly, a reputation for being a charitable purchase which benefits both the people of the tropical island as well as the environment and the environmental movement. But is the reputation well-deserved? Well, in a new Mother Jones magazine expose, a journalist Anna Lenzer notes that while U.S. citizens consume millions of bottles of imported water from Fiji, its own citizens face crumbling pipes, droughts, and dysfunctional water treatment plants. There are even reports of medical patients having to transport their own water to area hospitals just in the shadows of the water bottling plant. And the supposed charitable contributions and environmental benefits, well, let's talk to Anna Lenzer. Anna Lenzer joins us on the line. Uh, in addition to being a contributor to Mother Jones Magazine, she's worked for Rolling Stone and a host of uh, award-winning uh authors, journalists, and the like, including uh, David K. Johnston, the author of Free Lunch, How the Wealthiest Americans uh, Enrich Themselves at Government Expense, and uh, Grand Illusion, the untold story of Rudy Giuliani and 9-11. And uh, as someone who lived in New York for uh, many years during the Giuliani uh, administration, it's too bad we don't have time to talk about that as well. But uh, Anna Lenzer joins us, and good morning, Anna. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for uh, for being here. How are things uh, on the East Coast today? Uh, things are looking good. Nice day. Well, why don't we begin? It is, uh, first of all, congratulations on just a, a, an amazing uh, cover story. Mother Jones, uh, it seems, has done it again with, uh, with this one. What is the background for, uh, what's the impetus for the story? How does uh, someone uh, such as yourself decide to uh, write a, uh, a story, do an investigation about, was it bottled water that was your initial concern, or did you have a hunch that there was something up with Fiji water? Explain. Uh, right. It started off pretty generally. It started off really with a general water interest. Um, going back to actually my sort of last couple years of, of university, um, I'm Canadian, so I was going to, to university in Vancouver in Canada, and you know, this was around 2000, and water issues are sort of really becoming um, a big deal there. We have, you know, people like Maud Barlow, who's a, just a, you know, a global, you know, water speaker, water activist, and she came to my campus, and things like that. Um, and I, I was getting a science degree, and, and it sort of really combined my interests in politics and the environment. Um, so I really was interested in water from that point. Um, and then I, you know, wanted to get into journalism and sort of get into environmental writing, water writing. Um, so, so it was right sort of when I had moved here, you know, many years ago. Um, and, yeah, I started off thinking of, you know, just thinking of what I could do with, a, with, with water journalism. And Fiji started off as a sort of basically like a clause in the story. And, you know, what happened was I, you know, I just, a friend had mentioned this product to me, you know, it was really a new thing, but, you know, this was around 2001. Um, and I went on their website, and, and first of all, I saw that the founder of the company was a man named David Gilmore, who had co-founded created this company, Barrett Gold, which um, today is the biggest gold mining company in the world. And I, I knew a fair bit about them, and, you know, they have a lot of interesting connections to, you know, former presidents and so forth. Um, so, so that made me really interested in the company. And then also I just would go and started looking on the, the news in Fiji, and the first thing you see, you know, is every day there would be some water crisis or another, people, you know, running out of water, um, just a really, you know, clearly a water crisis going on there. So that really sort of captivated me. And over the years, I mean, I just kept 
hooked up with the news in Fiji and followed what the company was doing, and it was just sort of that, that's sort of how it snowballed from there. Now, I'm sure listeners of this program are aware of the politics of bottled water. I mean, we've done a lot of stories on, on environmentalism, uh, both here on Justice or Just Us and KUCI. And uh, so um, certainly I'm sure listeners, I mean, you've got a great chart here that uh, there's a great chart with the, accompanying the story that looks at uh, how far did bottled water travel to uh, a San Francisco <laughs> Whole Foods. And I don't know if that was mm-hmm. another, it looks like it was an, another contributor who helped put that research together. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for a bottle of Evian, it is 6,000 plus miles for uh, a bottle of uh, Perrier, it is uh, 5,900 miles. Uh, and for a bottle of Fiji water, it's 5,400 miles. The sad thing is that Dasani, which is Coca-Cola, is uh, 22 miles, but Coca-Cola's got a whole bunch of other issues. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, Coca-Cola, they have a bottling plant here in Queens, you know, it's like right. New York City tap water. So, I mean, yeah, that's that's really the, the sort of the game, right, with these water companies is how far away can can we bring you the water? I mean, the farther away, the better is sort of, sort of this, like, tension, you know, between the environmentalists looking at, you know, the further, the worse it is for the planet, and plus, you know, companies like Fiji saying the fact that it's so far away, that's what makes this, you know, just a totally unique product because it doesn't has not been touched by man. So, yeah, that is an so, interesting thing to look at. So before we even get to the politics of, of Fiji, uh, just to give, you know, the listeners the, the backdrop, I mean, so right away these numbers... Um, don't they kind of offset any claim of uh, environmental purity? I mean, the the product might be env- environmentally pure, but uh, what it takes to get the product from point A to point B kind of undoes any environmental claim. Isn't that kind of... Right. I mean, I, I would say that it's an absurd notion to suggest that importing water, you know, from Fiji to the United States is in any way an environmental net gain, and that's something that that I look at in the story, and I think a lot of people have probably heard Fiji Water's slogan, every drop is green, or they've seen the bottle with the green drop on it. And, you know, it's if you look at the actual impact when you buy a bottle of Fiji Water, I mean, the plastic, we talk about that in the story, the, Fiji uses double the plastic as a lot of bottles, and part of that was, you know, it makes the bottle feel very substantial, and that's sort of what went into making it this luxury product to start off with. Um, and the company even lists its carbon emissions on its website, and for a one-liter bottle, which isn't even the biggest bottle, there's a 1.5-liter bottle, but the one-liter bottle um, creates, they say, 1.3 pounds of gas, of carbon, of greenhouse gas. So then, you know, they go into this whole campaign of, well, we're, you know, buying offsets and this and that, but, you know, these are, those, are, those are paper numbers. Those are, like, you know, offsets that are calculated, you know, decades in the future that will take, you know, effect and so forth. So right now, you know, you're buying this, this product with a, a very big environmental footprint, um, and, yeah, it is, it is kind of a contradiction to sort of uh, say you're importing this water from so far away and you're, you're doing the planet a favor. I mean, the Fiji water literally says if you buy a bottle of Fiji, you are, I mean, one of the executives wrote this comment on the Huffington Post and said, you know, we'd be thrilled if anybody ever drank nothing but Fiji water as a means to keep the sea level down. And I, I think that's almost reckless and dangerous thinking. It's, it's a misrepresentation of what, what they're doing. I mean, the, the only uh, comparison that I could think of is... Uh, when Philip Morris started having uh, a, a stop smoking campaign. So ironically, the more Marlboro you bought, the more money was being 
funneled into the stop smoking campaign. <laughs> right. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, yeah, this is either like, Kafka let's, let's or... Fund, yeah. yeah let's, it, let's fund these sort of environmental projects with a fraction of our earning, you know, through these incredibly environmentally destructive practices. It's just, you know, it's the, the math, if you looked at it rationally, it does not make any sense. I want to remind listeners, they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Anna Lenzer. She is the author of Spin the Bottle, uh, which exposes the truth about uh, both Fiji water and, more broadly, the bottled water industry. So let's turn specifically to uh, the politics of Fiji. How did you find out? I mean, you had mentioned earlier that I guess you had been studying bottled water in general, and then you can't help but keep hearing about the instability in Fiji. So maybe tell our listeners, you know, you know, we're Americans, you're Canadian, so we don't quite know our geography as well as right. maybe other. Where is Fiji? Give some, some background about the instability of the country. Right. So Fiji is actually a, many hundreds of islands. There's about 300 islands total, 100 100 or so are inhabited, but there's basically one main island called Viti Levu. Um, population is, is nearly a million people now, but it's, it's in the South Pacific. Um, its nearest neighbors are Australia, New Zealand, and, you know, some of the, the other South Pacific islands. But So it's in, it's in the South Pacific. Um, and Fiji has a sort of tumultuous history. It was a, a British crown colony in the 19th century, and I think it was like 1874 or so. Um, then it became an independent company, uh, country in 1970. Um, and then, you know, in, in the years since then, it, it's had four coups. Um, in the 1980s, there was another coup in 2000. Um, and then the current regime, right now, Fiji is ruled by a military junta. That's something, you know, we get into. And there really, there really aren't, I don't know the total number, but there really aren't that many countries today still ruled by a military junta. I mean, there's Burma, you know, Libya, a couple others. Um, but the, the current regime that rules Fiji, uh, they took power in a 2006 coup. Um, and a lot of the tension in Fiji has to do with um, sort of these, these ethnic divisions that have, you know, were a result of colonialism because when uh, Fiji was a, a British crown colony, the, the British imported um, brought in indentured sugar sugar plantation workers from India. So as a result, uh, Fiji is about 40%, uh, you know, 40% of an Indian population today. So there's been a lot of, you know, tension between the factions there. Um, and so right now the regime took power in the 2006 coup. And, you know, just to, to tie it into today and what's in my story, what actually happened was um, this was back in April when I went to Fiji. And the day before I actually went to Fiji, the country... Um, withdrew the constitution, they overthrew the whole judiciary, and they declared martial law. Um, and they did that because the Court of Appeals um, had gone through this various legal processes looking at, you know, the 2006 coup, and that very week they had declared the regime, you know, illegal, unconstitutional. And so, you know, the regime's response was basically to just shut down, shut down the country. And, uh, and that, that's sort of the political context that I arrived in. So, I, you know, my plane was leaving. I had a few hours. My bag's packed when I learned this. So that was, that was sort of what is overlaid in the story, which is I'm, you know, going into the situation, which has just sort of come to a boil. And, and right now, um, I should point out, there's still, Fiji is still under martial law, and just uh, on September 1st, the Commonwealth, Fiji's still part of the Commonwealth, um, suspended Fiji because they're they're now saying that they're not going to hold elections until uh, 2014. So it's a very tense situation, and that's sort of, um, in a nutshell, how we got here. And when you visited uh, Fiji, uh, you kind of had uh, your own little encounter with uh, the politics of the regime. Uh, it, when I picked up the uh, 
the article and started reading it, I was pretty surprised that it was going to start in that way. I thought, wow, this is really going to be a, a powerful article. Uh, maybe give our listeners a sense of uh, the kind of risk that you took uh, doing this uh, reporting, because uh, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, I mean that you know when I when I planned the trip and we were planning the story originally, you know that obviously wasn't part of it. It was just a really um, you know coincidence in the timing. But um, you know I had been following Fijian politics for years, and and there's sort of this idea that Fiji is um, it's it's still a very popular tourist destination, and even throughout this you know this political tension and these these coup over the last few years, there's still this idea that it's a safe place for tourists and for Americans and so forth. And um, you know my reporting was not really about the political situation, so you know the worst that I had read that was happening in Fiji to journalists was you know mainly these Australian and New Zealand journalists were being deported if they if they were filing stories you know on the specifically on the regime on the political situation so when I went into Fiji I didn't I didn't you know the biggest risk that I felt I was taking was that um, you know I might be deported if my questions you know if someone perceived them to be too sensitive or something um, but it was fascinating when I got there I, I was not expecting it and because the first day I got there you know, anybody I talked to on the streets, they were basically like, this is the wrong time for you to be here. You should leave, you know. And I, I, one of the big reasons I went there was to do things like go to the courthouses. And, you know, Fiji Water has had um, a number of, of court cases there. So I wanted to, to try to look at, you know, court documents, government documents. But, but everybody was just saying, you know, do not go to the courthouse. Do not go to the government house. Don't call, you know, it's a bad time. You'll get deported. So I had sort of postponed these, you know, th- that, those sort of reporting tasks until the end of my trip, thinking like I'll just stay under the radar as long as possible. Possible, um, you know. So, so for that this very day when I had this encounter, you know, I was back in Suva, which is the capital city of Fiji. Um, and just to recap for your listeners, what happened? I mean, I was in an internet cafe in the morning. Um, I had my own laptop, and I was I had been to the Fiji water factory the day before, so I was on my own computer um, sending some emails back home about my trip to the factory. Um, I sent a story about you know the political situation, and and my computer died and. Basically, a few minutes later, a pair of police officers walked in and arrested me. Um, it turned out they, you know, basically they said, we're going to take you in for questioning about the emails you've been writing. So the police in Fiji have, I learned through getting arrested, have police officers actually reading people's emails in Internet cafes. And this, that was just completely shocking to me because obviously I didn't, I mean, I didn't have wireless in my hotel. I would have done that, but I would have taken the precaution and not been there. But, you know, this was something nobody knew that they were doing. Um, so, you know, that was, that was sort of my introduction to the, the Fijian, um, you know, police system. Your right own there. your own personal welcoming committee. <laughs> my own personal, yeah, my own personal. We're speaking with Anna Lenzer, uh, journalist, author of Spin the Bottle, the cover story of Mother Jones. Well, uh, tell listeners some of the things that you discovered on your trip. To, uh, I'm looking specifically, is it pronounced um, Rocky Rocky? The, Rocky, the, Rocky, the yeah. village where uh, the bottling plant uh, is located. What, uh, what are the conditions there? Right. Well, well, Rocky Rocky was, you know, one of the reasons I really stayed fascinated with the story over the years because I would read the, the you know, these about ten or twelve Fijian news sites every day, and and uh, Rocky Rocky would come up all the time with these stories with, with with various water crises. I mean, it would be you know typhoid, or it would be you know there's a really catastrophic drought throughout Fiji in in the late '90s, like an 18 month drought in which um, UN disaster teams were were there and reporting that they were trying to deliver emergency water to nearly half the country. So, you know, I just read over the years just this one thing after another with people in Rocky Rocky not being able to get enough water or having this toxic water. Um, and then when I went to the factory, you know, you take this bus from the capital city, Suva, it's about four hours, 
So the last stop before, you know, with the bus stops before we get to the factory, about half an hour before you get to the factory, um, is Rocky Rocky. So it was it was really fascinating to go there. I mean, I went in the, you know, I have a Lonely Planet travel guide. I just picked up for Fiji, and it said, you know, Rocky Rocky water uh, is deemed unfit for human consumption. Um, you go in the grocery stores in Rocky Rocky, and they, they sell Fiji water, and it's it was funny. I, we, we converted the price, and it turned out it was basically nearly the same price as it costs in the United States for Fiji water, and this is, you know, half an hour from the plant. Uh, but it, Rocky Rocky, to me, really symbolized this, like, extreme, you know, paradox and tension at the heart of Fiji water, which is, you know, all these years, I'm reading these stories about Rocky Rocky and, you know, people not having water, actually. At, at one point, there were stories, um, the government or they were trying to get emergency water deliveries, and they only, you know, they, it was going to cost like $3,000 or something, and they couldn't afford it. I mean, it was just, this, you know, $3,000 just when you think of Fiji Water's earnings. So I just had this, I could not, you know, trying to understand this idea of these, you know, millions of bottles of Fiji Water sort of being trucked past this town and off the island, and sort of what were the politics behind that, and, and how did that work? So that was, yeah, that was really a focal point of the story. You know, I mean, one of the things that I find so hard to believe, and maybe this is, a, you know, a bigger, broader theme. I mean, it's one of the things I like about the article is that it really raises a bunch of questions. But, you know, you talk about all of the, the A-list celebrities or politicians or celebrity politicians. I mean, right. anyone from Barack Obama to, to Al Gore to, uh, you know, Ariana Huffington, uh, I find it hard to believe that people of that stature and that political awareness uh, are, uh, I don't want to use the word ignorant, but I can't think of any other word at this point, ignorant of this this yeah. paradox that uh, we're taking a natural resource from this island, and yet the very people who reside there don't have uh, drinkable water. Is this, is this part of a broader, you know, uh, American... Uh, or Western, maybe, um, practice of just not thinking about, you know, where the, f the, the, the meat on our plate comes from or where the gas in our car comes from. Or, or th I mean, th there's just something quite shocking seeing a picture of Barack Obama drinking, uh, drinking Fiji water or Al Gore at a conference or uh, even worse. I mean, I was at the RNC protesting and I almost went to the Life After Capitalism uh, conference, though I was arrested so I could make it. Uh -oh. But um, <laughs> but the uh, you know the whole um, the whole idea of a bunch of panelists at a Life After Capitalism conference uh, drinking Fiji water and being oblivious—maybe that's a better word—oblivious yeah. of what's going on. Um, I don't know if I'm just grandstanding or if you want to comment on that. Yeah, no, I mean, yes, yeah, so the life up, that was back in 2004. And I think what you're talking about, it's, it's really true in, in the sense that I think there's this real blind spot about, about and the, the language I use in the story is that the brand of Fiji has eclipsed you know, Fiji the country, and I, it's sort of, you know, the, the company has spent, you know, in, to, in 2008 they were going to spend $10 million on marketing um, and sort of that's something I get into the story where really the company has marketed not just its product, not just Fiji water, but, but Fiji the country. I mean, they have trademarked the name of the bottle. Um, you, know, all, you know, they're marketing their slogans and so forth. They were all geared to sort of sell us this idea of Fiji as a tranquil, unspoiled paradise. Um, and it, it really has been interesting over the years to sort of see all these people, you know, politicians and celebrities drinking the water. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the company has sort of been very successful, you know, at, at presenting themselves as a 
is, you know, not only an ecologically sensitive company, but, but you know, basically a politically sensitive company. I mean, its, it's owners right now, Linda Resnick, is, she's very well known in this country. I mean, she writes a blog on the Huffington Post. She's a huge political donor. I talk about in the story, I looked at their, their political contributions, and both she and her husband, Stuart, um, contributed more than $300,000 to you know, a whole host of Democratic politicians, you know, from Obama to Hillary Clinton and so forth, but they also contributed uh, to McCain. <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're, they're these very politically connected people. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I have no idea what people are thinking when they drink Fiji water, but, you know, the story was intended really to lay out all the information that I was able to find about the company. Um, and, you know, part of that, I think, is questioning this idea that Fiji water has presented, which is, you know, if you buy a bottle of Fiji water, you are doing a net positive thing for the environment and for the people of Fiji. Um, you know, and, and one thing, you know, right when the story was coming out, it was, or when I was finishing writing it, was when Obama was doing his big announcement about, you know, pursuing people who operate in tax havens. And this, this really became a big issue for a while, and it still is. Um, but, you know, one thing I, I discovered in, in researching the company was that Fiji Water, you know, operates, has these, these arms in these tax havens. So their, their, their name, their trademark name, Fiji, is registered to a, a, one of their companies in the Cayman Islands or one of the, you know, the owner's companies in the Cayman Islands. Um, but beyond that, their, their actual Fijian company, according to court documents, their own records, um, is owned by a company called Fiji Water Luxembourg. So it's like Fiji Water Entity in Luxembourg. So, you know, the story was really just intended to, to look at all aspects of the company. And, you know, uh, you know we, mentioned, we talk about that one of the big things that the company has started doing is making these contributions in Fiji, probably about, you know, one or two million dollars. But I'm really, we're trying to look at the whole picture and what does that compare to total revenues compared to the fact that, you know, it hasn't paid any tax. Taxes. It's had a tax-free holiday since 1995, so it really is a complicated picture, and there's a lot of people who drink it, and I don't know, I don't know what happens from here, but it is interesting. Uh, so, um, and I suppose for the record, I should let listeners, let listeners know I was arrested for protesting the RNC, not for any other kind of uh, craziness, <laughs> right. but, um, but I guess that was craziness too. But um, so here's the, you know, the multi-million dollar question, I suppose. So when consumers uh, purchase a bottle of Fiji water, aside from all the other environmental concerns and so forth, um, are people supporting the current regime when they purchase a bottle of Fiji water? Well, I would really, you know, just encourage people to read the story and see how they feel about it after they read it. I mean, it's a, it's a really complicated question. And when, you know, the thing I look at is, you know, right now, you know, for example, I spoke to Fiji Water spokesman last year, and the way he put it to me then was, we basically market Fiji with the product. Um, and he also said that this is one of the few products the government has it's been able to get around the world, and that's been a really good thing for the government. Um, but I also talk about, I quote, um, recently a, a, a attorney uh, who was working for the U.N., he wrote a commentary called Why Obama Should Stop Drinking Water. And, you know, he's basically saying, um, you know, the regime, we're in this horrendous situation. Nobody knows what to, what to do. And Fiji Water is the company's signature uh, the country's signature product. So I don't, you know, people should, should really read the story, but the, the fact is that, you know, over the years and, and still to this day, um, the regime talks about what they call brand Fiji, right? So they always say, we have this great, you know, Im image now of Fiji as an unspoiled paradise, and Fiji water has been instrumental in creating that. Um, and what the consequence of that is, is just, you know, in the last few months, during you know during this reign of martial law, we're still seeing like tourism Fiji, other Fijian agencies. They they circulate these photos of you know we're talking about Obama. There's a famous photograph now of Obama with 
some delegates on Fiji water bottles. So the Fijian government circulates these photographs. They, you know, they take them on, on they have these, you know, they go to China and they're really doing a big push now to try to bring business and tourists from China. So Fiji water, you know, they, they talk about their trade shows there and they're going and they're promoting Fiji water. Um, and, and even in the last couple of weeks, Fiji water is still working with Fiji embassies, like in Japan. They, you know, people can go to the U.S., the Fijian U.S. embassy website, and and there's a Fiji water bottle at the top of the page. So whether or not you know we're talking about direct support, I mean, my story is basically saying there's this just you know intermingling to the point of people. I think a lot of people in the states. I've had people say, "Oh, I thought that was a product of the Fijian government." I mean, there's just this real blurring in the public eye, at least, between the company and the country. So. Um, I would encourage people to, to read the story. And uh, just one question I probably should have asked at, at the, the outset. How, how do, I, I don't know if, you, if this was part of your, your research, either for the article or you know, all your prior research on the topic of bottled water, how do corporations, and, and in particular foreign corporations, gain access to and or ownership of these natural resources, because we are seeing, you know, the privatization of, of natural resources. We know that, you know, was it years ago, Bechtel privatized water. I, I was in Bolivia. Or I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does this situation arise where a, a, a U.S. corporation controls so much of the water in a, a, a foreign country? Right. I mean, that you know, sort of why I was really focused on Fiji was as a microcosm of this larger question, which is all over the world, these private companies for very little money, you know, are, are, are able to get the rights to these water, to this water. And, I, you know, we talk about the, one of the sidebars in the Mother Jones story, and they, it was uh, Jen Phillips, who's uh, an, an editor there, she uh, did a fant- another fantastic sidebar, which looked at, you know, domestic brands of water. And, you know, you look at them, and they're all, like, you know, have some pristine picture on the front, and then they're, they're like, from a Superfund site, or they're toxic. And it's sort of, you know, and on top of it, they're paying just a tiny fraction on the dollar for the water. So, it, you know, it, it varies by situation how companies are getting these resources. But, you know, I think people are finally starting to look at these companies one by one and saying, you know, how much are you selling this for? Where is this from? And, you know, what is the markup on it? But, you know, in Fiji's case, I look at it, which it was really interesting, which was... Um, had a lot to do with the owner, David Gilmore, and that's sort of another area of the story that we haven't really talked about, which is just, you know, the connections that this this man had. I mean, he had founded these, you know, this gold mining company and so forth, but he already, he had been in Fiji um, for many years already, or in the South Pacific, and he had um, started a, a resort and a hotel company. Um, he had backing, he was working with a couple of Saudi princes, so he just had these incredible international connections, and they were funding him, and he started a company called the South the Southern Pacific Hotel Corporation, um, and they had built some resorts in Fiji, and and in the South Pacific, so he was well known in Fiji. Um, and basically, what happened was the how this water was discovered was really interesting. Um, it was a, the Fijian government actually was was serving the island with um, some aid organizations from around the world, some geologists and so forth. You know, trying to find other stores of groundwater for the Fijian people. Um, and basically, they you know they came across this aquifer. It's in a very deserted part of Fiji, and it's another interesting thing because Fiji has a lot of sort of land tensions, um, but this is in a, in a more deserted area um, on the north shore. Um, and basically, they, someone at his company found this report, which you know talked about this aquifer, and they essentially, through his connections to the government, he got a 99-year lease um, 
he got a 90-year lease on the land, and which gave him access to the aquifer. Um, and he he mentioned once. I mean, the company won't say now or or you know how big the aquifer is, but he said in um, on CNN once that it was a 17-mile long aquifer. You know, so it's just a huge piece of land. And from what I can tell, I mean, the, just with the barest minimum of payments. I mean, a 99-year lease just with you know tax-free and so forth. So really, you know, it was sort of presented as, oh, this is great. This is for an investment for Fiji. This this may or may not work. We don't know. But it was, you know, they're definitely company was given every incentive, um, and to this day, Fiji water, you know, being is now the most popular imported water in the states, but they still don't pay any taxes in Fiji, so it's a, it's got a good deal. Wow. Well, uh, this might be outside the scope of your uh, reporting, but um, you know, it's always a tough choice what to do when uh, when confronted with uh, a situation like this. I've done shows in the past on sweatshops. And uh, being a professor, I worked with students. I was the faculty advisor to the Students Against Sweatshops campaign that we had uh, at Cal State Fullerton uh, a few years ago. And I actually had an opportunity to take uh, some of my students on the campaign down to Tijuana, Mexico, and uh, meet with some of the women uh, who have the legal clinic there um, that's featured in a, a PBS documentary, uh, Maquilopolis. And, you know, the Maquiladoras are the, the kind of the sweatshops right. down there. And uh, when the students asked, what should we do, the response was, well, whatever you do, don't boycott, because that's not going to help us either. And so I, I remember scratching my head thinking, you know, boy, you know, <laughs> well, okay, don't boycott, but, but you don't want to support the same kind of exploitation. So uh, I don't know if you've thought much about this, but... Um, Maybe I'll ask you a, a somewhat pointed question. Do you drink Fiji water, and would you recommend? What would you recommend to uh, your friends and family? Uh, what they should do uh, in order to try to change the situation? And if I'm putting you on the spot, I apologize. That's okay. No, I don't drink Fiji water. I don't. I don't, in fact, drink any bottled water. I mean, I live in New York City, and you know, we have some of the best. New York City has, takes care of its upstate watershed. I mean, it's, it's some of the best water in the world. Um, and it is interesting to live somewhere like New York and see how people will choose bottled water from, you know, again, these very questionable places, like they're talking about within the United States, over, over tap water. So, I mean, it is a million-dollar question. And really, you know, my, it's, you know, I, I wondered that for years, like how, what is going on here? I mean, really my goal with the story, and I really think Mother Jones is fantastic, and what they printed was just really to, to put out every piece of, relevant piece of information that I could. I mean, I talk a lot about their, you know, we talk about their charity work. I talk about you know, the fact that it does employ, um, you know, a number of people, and it is an important part of Fiji's economy. So you're right. I mean, and I just, you know, it, I think I think there's a lot of opportunity for something creative. I mean, whether that's on consumers' parts or whether that's on Fiji, Fiji Water's part, I mean, I, I really don't know what happens next. I mean, as far as, you know, as far as there's a few questions, I mean, there's the water itself. Like, what, what kind of, how much waste are you willing to produce? What is the water, you know, you have available to you? I don't I feel comfortable telling people what water they should drink. I mean, everybody's water is different, and they should, you know, drink the best water that they can. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just really hope that this starts a conversation with Fiji Water, and I have been have been encouraging to see. I mean, just today um, people can look on the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia, and they're running a big story about Fiji Water and about our story. So, I mean, I really just, this is going to, you know, it's hundreds of millions of people drink it. So for, for me as one person to say what, 
all the, you know, what's going to happen. It's just, sure. I can't even imagine doing that. It's like, I just think, you know, I definitely think a conversation has started. And I think the important thing is people just become aware of what, what it is that they're drinking. I mean, it's a complicated question, what do you do? But what I've discovered is a lot of people, I, you know, did not even know that, the, that Fiji water, you know, comes from a milit- from a dictatorship. They just did not know that. So, how people what they do with that um, will be interesting to see. But I'm glad that I'm glad that at least people know that now. And as well as the you know the environmental claims, which is, you know, people genuinely took this message literally from the company, which is if you buy Fiji water, you know, like that moment you're helping the planet. But it's just not the case. So, you know, once people sort of reassess those priorities, um, I think I, you know they'll make their own decisions from there. Absolutely. I mean, it's you know the the first step is is awareness, and um, and of course there's bottled water and then there's bottled water. I mean, here at at uh, the studio in the radio station, we've got uh, one of like the sparklets. You know, kind of those those you, you know we always talk about Monday morning, everyone gathering around the water yeah. cooler. I mean, that's bottled water, but it it has such a right. less you know carbon footprint because right. you're not producing you know the little individually packaged uh, things. So uh, we'll yeah. we'll let listeners figure out uh, exactly what they should do. Finally, uh, anything next on your docket? Any next big scoop for you? Um, well, I mean, there's you know some things about Fiji that. <coughs> Uh, didn't get into the first story. We might do some follow-up on that, but I'm also uh, going to start working on another uh, water story from Mother Jones, uh, so that should be interesting. But uh, we'll see. Yeah, I'm hoping to... I mean, the situation in Fiji, you know, it's still evolving, so I'm hoping, you know, to see what actually happens there. The article is titled Spin the Bottle. It is in the October 2009 issue of Mother Jones magazine. Do check it out. Uh, Anna Lenser, it's really a great... Uh, Great article. Uh, I teach a course on white collar crime, and of course, the the uh, you know the pinnacle of Mother Jones was the the story about uh, the Ford Pinto way back when. And so, it's great <laughs> to see that you're following in the tradition of great reporting for Mother Jones. So, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning, and uh, I hope hope I could have you on for uh, follow up stories. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Great. Take care. Okay. You too. Bye. And we will be back with more justice or just us after this. Brief musical break.